Welcome to the Mustang UMC podcast recorded each Sunday morning during our 8.30 and 10.50 a.m. services. We invite you to join us in praise and worship during that time, and our hope is that this podcast serves as an encouragement for you and for your family in your daily life. Our scripture continues to be from Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 10, as we are in the Beatitudes this week, we'll be focusing on, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. But let us give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. You all may be seated. Let us pray. So God, we pray for these words, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And Lord, we we strive to be these peacemakers. And so Lord, uh, we pray that you would teach us and you would show us your truth. Lord, reveal to us what we need today, where we are as we are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. There are sometimes I think of, uh, as a pastor, I, I go to this line um, that the Jesus' disciples said, it's in John 6, 60, and it says, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? And when I, I think about this task of peacemaking, I, I think that this is a hard teaching, and it is hard to accept. And the more that I went through like getting the sermon ready throughout the week, the harder and harder this teaching became for me. Because what does it mean to be a peacemaker? And what does it mean to be called a child of God? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And and peacemaking is such difficult work. And I know some of you are in the midst of it right now. Um, And so I, I know that I'm not just preaching to like this idea of peacemaking. I'm preaching to people who are in the midst of peace needing to be made. It may be in your home. It may be in your workplace. It may be with yourself. It may be you're, you're trying to make peace amongst people that you are around, but, but peacemaking is a deeply personal thing, and it's a very difficult thing. So we need to remember the promise of this one. For they will be called children of God. For they will be sons and daughters of God. Now in those days, uh, and as we were talking on Monday, my dad reminded me of this. In those days, to be called the son of something was to be the best representative of that. And so um, in the book of Acts, we hear about a guy named Barnabas who was called the son of encouragement. That he was the best representative of encouragement that existed. And so it really is interesting for us to think that the best representation of God in this world is to be a peacemaker. That that is really how do we best look like God? How do we best look like Jesus? It's when we are making peace with one another. And the more that I thought about it, the more that I think that is to be true because the fundamental identity of Jesus is, is the one who brings things together. And this is who our God is. 
It starts all the way in the beginning of our story in Genesis chapter 1. It says the earth was formless and void. It was chaotic. And God spoke and he brought order to the world. It's taking this chaos of life and bringing order into it. We, we see the same thing with, that when Jesus calmed the sea, the chaos under him in the sea and over him with the storm and Jesus got out on the boat and he said, peace be still, and he brought order. He brought peace, wholeness to this idea of chaos that was all around him. The cross, he reconciled, he brought together people to himself that, that sin had separated us from God, but because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he brought us together in fullness and in wholeness. He brought peace between us. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now the good news is, you and I are going to have plenty of opportunities to practice this in our life. Way too many, it feels like at times. And so we really need to explore this idea of what is peacemaking, what is peace, and how do we go about it. Now, one of the fundamental things to understand is, is what it was like in Jesus' day, um, because when he said, blessed are the peace, he was speaking to a very particular time and people. So in those days, uh, the Israelites and Jesus, they were living under Roman oppression and during this era called the Pax Romana. Some of you may have heard this in your history um, books way back when, but it was called the Peace of Rome, but it really wasn't peace. It was more like compliance, right? And, and there's a big difference between peacekeeping, which is about compliance, and peacemaking, which is about cooperation, right? So for myself, there are times in which we have peace in our house. It's when one boy is in one room and another boy is in another room. And there's peace, right? But that's not, that's not necessarily peace, is it? it? It's more about compliance and we can do this, right? People sometimes do things because they don't want the consequences of not doing things. Not because they want to cooperate, but because they feel the need to comply. This was the time of what it was like for the Jewish people when Jesus was saying, blessed are the peacemakers. He wasn't talking about the Romans who said, we're going to keep peace at a high cost. And that high cost is your back and your skin if you break it. One of the reasons that Jesus was crucified is because he was stirring up waters. He was disrupting the powers. And what the Romans did is if you were disrupting the world, we'll put you on a cross so people know not to disrupt the peace. And Jesus died because he disrupted what was going on in a world that valued peacekeeping instead of peacemaking. And so we are not here to try to just keep the peace. We're not here just to try to separate people into rooms. That's not the mission of God, is to keep things separated so nobody's upset. The mission of God is to bring wholeness, is to bring us together, is to help us to cooperate in this way. And so the Hebrew word that, that was used to describe peace, and they still use as a greeting today, is the word shalom. You may have, have heard this word. But shalom is not just about, hey, there's, not, there's the absence of fighting. Shalom is about wholeness. It's the complete presence of God's hope, of God's peace, of God's love, and God's joy in a situation. It's not just a everything's fine. It's a sense of presence of wholeness it's what we long for it's what we hope for it's when God is fully there and so you and I are on this mission of wholeness 
to be shalom, to bring shalom, and to experience this peace that passes all understanding. And I really do think that it's part of our high calling. Um, but, but as we go into this, I, I weigh just a, a word of caution. And we find it in Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, I think this is important for us to understand that um, as much as we want to make peace, there are some people who do not want to have anything to do with peace. It is not always possible. It's not always our responsibility. But what is our responsibility is to attempt and to have a posture of peacemaking with everyone. And so I know that, again, as I think about just, just where you might be today, is, is you might be thinking about, okay, I need to make peace with this person, but it may not be possible today. It may be possible a year from now. It may be possible five years from now, but it may not be possible today. Or maybe it is. And maybe it is because you need to do something. So how do we make peace? There's a, a song, and for me it's always going to be a Christmas song, because I heard it on Vince Gill's Christmas album in like 1995. So it's always a Christmas song, but you won't find it in the Christmas song section of your hymnal. Um, but it's a, a song that was on his Christmas album. It's called Let There Be Peace on Earth. It says, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. And so can we today agree to have a posture of let there be peace and let it begin with me? Let's take the responsibility to do what we can. Now, here's the hard thing. And, and there's a book that I, I, a resource that I utilize called The Anatomy of Peace. Um, and so a lot of this is coming from that resource. And, and the thing is, he says that, that you and I, we have a problem because we have a heart problem, is that we have a heart of war versus a heart of peace. And that, that we often experience a heart of war, that we actually like conflict. And I know this is true, because if you just scroll through Netflix, what do you see? You see conflict, right? Like, do I really need to know how that person was murdered? Yes, I do apparently need to know how that person was murdered, right? There's something about, um, one of the things I say is never underestimate the human propensity towards drama. There's something about us that has this heart of war. And it's not just be that we are interested in drama, that there's something that is deeper within our bones about it. And, and we see this actually in one of the most famous interactions that we have in scripture between Jesus and another person. This is Luke chapter 10, um, beginning in verse 25. It says, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him the question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, like, if, one of, if we asked one of our kids in Sunday school this question and they answered that, we'd give them a sticker, right? Like, boom, you got the right answer. We're so proud of you. And what Jesus says is he says, right, do this and you will live. But then the man, then, this, then the scripture says this in verse 29. The man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus went on to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan about the person who was robbed and beaten and left on the side of the road, and different people passed by, and who was the neighbor? But here, at the heart of the person, the man wanted to justify himself. And what the, the author of this book, The Anatomy of Peace, and some of the other resources he says, is that the problem of a heart of war 
is that it begins with a heart that needs to be justified. This is what he says. He says, when we have a need to be justified, then we value problems more than solutions, and we value conflict over peace. And this happens, right? You know, one of the interesting things, and I ain't talking about anybody, I'm just talking about what I'm talking about, but over the course of time, I've done a wide variety of funerals. Do you know what is the number one descriptor when I ask people, hey, would you describe this person in a word? The number one word that people tell me? Stubborn. The single largest descriptor of people in my encounter that when they sum up somebody at the end of their life is stubborn. And I thought, yep, that's true. Stubborn. I, I, I see some of you all tapping your loved one on the shoulder. Um, that's between you and them right now, and apparently Jesus too. And now me as well, and everybody else, because they all know it too. I didn't point anybody out, but yeah. Um, but we, we have this stubbornness, right? Have any of you ever been in an argument, right? And, and you just find yourself like, uh-uh, I am going to be right. Right? I'm right. And until you admit that I'm right about this, we ain't moving on. I ain't moving on. You can move wherever you want, but I ain't moving. Right? Because we want to be justified. We want to be right. We want to have the high ground. We want to be able to separate ourselves from them. And so we value this more than we value that. It reminds me of an episode of The Office because that's how my brain works. Where Angela, um, who was the not nice person in The Office, she said, yeah, me and my sister got in a fight years ago and I haven't talked to her since about something I don't even remember what it was. Yeah, that's how good I am. Right? Like there's this sense of pride we even have in our stubbornness and in our justification. And there's actually a variety of ways in which we justify ourselves. And so in the book, he talks about these four ways of self-justification, the ways in which you and I justify ourselves. Uh, the first one, he says, is that we are better than. And, and, and we, we, we find ourselves superior to other people or other groups of people, and we can do it in all sorts of ways. But that we say, okay, well, at least I'm not like them, fill in the blank, because I'm better than they are. And it's so easy and it's so sneaky that that can come up. I'm, I'm more educated. I'm, I have a different perspective. If they, were, if they saw the world the way I did, then everybody would be better. Whatever the case may be, we can judge them because we see ourselves as better than them. The next one is I deserve this. This is a dangerous one. I think about this being what I would consider the drive-through fallacy I make a lot of times. So when we go through the drive-through and there's like four of us in the family, so I, I order a variety of things with a variety of different modifications, all right? I am that person that the drive-through people have to hate, right? Just come inside, please. No, I don't want to. Um, right? But so then I'll order some food with all these modifications, right? But of course, when I, I'll sometimes check it, but I don't check everything because it's tiring, open up everything. So I'll come home, right, and something will be wrong. And what do I feel? <sighs> I deserve better than this. I paid good money for that bean burrito. They better get it right, right? That, that there's a sense of because I'm entitled to something, right? And, and, and who cares if it was that 17-year-old's third day on the job? Because I deserve something. Right? So easy that we get the entitlement thing that, that comes up into us. Now another way is this need to be seen as. This is a dangerous one as well because it's about how we're being perceived. 
I need to be seen as successful. I need to be seen as right. I need to be seen as smart. I need to be seen as professional. I need to be seen as, as responsible, whatever it is. But, but this need to be seen drives my justification. Now, the next one's interesting, and it was surprising to me, and it may be surprising to you as well, but it's a justification of worse than, where you're your own worst critic. And we see ourselves as worse than another. I don't deserve this. I guess I'm not good enough to understand. I don't have the same knowledge. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I, I can sometimes see is, you know, uh, for me, I think God's word is available to all of us. But there are some of you who may disagree with me on scriptural interpretation, which to me is great. But you may think, ah, I don't have the degree. I don't have the training. I don't have, I'm not qualified to do that. I'm worse than I'm at a different level. And that's not what God, that's not from God. So we, we don't need to see ourselves, justify ourselves as unworthy or unimportant or not a part of it. And so we justify ourselves. We, we want to be right. We want to be on the good side instead of the bad side. And obviously, if it's us, we're on the right side. But the problem is, is that the more that we try to prove that we're right, the more that we justify ourselves, the more that we enter into this cycle, all right, and into this damaging cycle of collusion. And so in the book, he talks about how we collude with one another, how we partner together to make our lives miserable in a conflict. And we have a chart. So you all love charts. I know you do. So this is what you and I do, all right, is that we see something, we perceive something. So then we do something based on our perception. And then they see something and they perceive something. And then they do something based on their perceptions, which feed into our perceptions. Clear as mud, I can tell. Let's give you all an example. Let me give you an example from the book. Let me be clear. This is from the book, all right? So this is from a wife's perspective. I see my inconsiderate husband running off to socialize, leaving me to take care of the house. So that's her perception. So what does she do? She passively, aggressively tells him, well, go have fun with your friends while I slave away taking care of the children, stewing all along. Hypothetical, I know. Um, very, very weird for you all. Um, so then, what does he see? He sees a clingy wife that never wants him to leave the house, and that makes him feel guilty. So what does he do? He wants to gain freedom from the clingy wife, so he finds more and more reasons to get out of the house, which feeds her seeing her inconsiderate husband. Do you see how this happens, right? And it just spirals, and it spirals, and it spirals out of control? All right, um, I saw somebody move away from their spouse. I don't know what that's about, but that's just like, whew. okay. Let me give you another example, all right? Um, you know, you, you see somebody on Facebook or Instagram sharing a, a meme or an article that you disagree with, right? You see that. So, um, so you share with other people, oh my gosh, I can't believe this person thinks this or believes that. What kind of person would do that, right? That's your action to your perception, that they're wrong, they're crazy, they're off their rock, or whatever it might be. So then word gets to them of what you did, that you shared, that you thought they were crazy. So they see a person who is obviously against them, who is obviously different, who um, is obviously not in the right. So what do they do? They share more stuff on Facebook. They share more and more. They double down on trying to be right in this situation, which causes this person to perceive them as crazier. And the cycle continues and continues. And this is what really chaos is. It's this continual spiral, all right, of collusion that you and I have. 
again and again and again. We miss each other. We miss each other. We assume things. We perceive things that aren't there. Or we're just unwilling to engage what actually is going on. And, we say, and, and so we don't do this well. And so it is into this chaos that peacemaking is necessary. And peacemaking is needed. And the good news is, is this is what Jesus has done for us. We actually have a model of peacemaking that is extraordinary. Because Jesus left the comforts of heaven to come down to the messiness of earth. And he experienced chaos and he chose it. And in John chapter 1, we, we hear these words about Jesus' mission. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So much good stuff here. So he came among us. He became real and present, not just an idea, not just up there, but he dwelt among us. He took this journey alongside of us. And then at the end it has these words, full of grace and truth. Both of these things. Sometimes we think these things are opposites. But really these things are actually called to work in partnership. So, I did one of my favorite things in the world, which is to make another chart, y'all. Man, I just had a lot of fun this week, I tell you what. So I made a chart, a little two-by-two chart, which, as you know, is one of my favorite things that talks about grace and truth and what it looks like when we find ourselves either high grace or low grace, or whether we find high truth or low truth. Now, Jesus was full of, 100% max capacity of grace and truth. You and I, we don't have that luxury of being 100%. All right, but hopefully we can grow in our grace and hopefully we can grow in our truth and we can be on the high side of this. But what happens is, is that you and I often, we find ourselves more bent towards one of these, high grace or high truth, and, and, and we find ourselves at different places. So let's just kind of walk through this chart. So if you are high grace and low truth, then you're an enabler. Um, and that, that really you, you just keep enabling somebody to do this. You, you keep making excuses for them. You keep helping them down the road of continuing to, to hurt themselves. High grace with low truth is about enabling. Now, low grace, low truth, none of you are there, but hypothetically, all right, somebody's cruel. There's no forgiveness, there's no understanding, and there's no speaking truth. There's no helping out. That's just cruel. And there's a, this world can be a cruel place. With low grace and low truth, we know that to be true. Now, there are also some of us who are low on grace and high on truth. That it comes across as judgmental. I have the truth, you don't, and you better come to my way of being. That's a very judgmental way of living in the world. Now, one of the things that I realize is that we can often find ourselves probably more likely in the high grace, low truth thing or high truth, low grace part. More of us are either bit towards judgmentalism, all right, or we're bit towards enabling. And I just sort of invite you to find yourself on the chart. Um, and if you don't know where you are, ask somebody who knows you. They'll probably tell you where you are on the chart, all right? Especially if they're a high truth person, all right? If they're a high grace person, they might just tell you, well, maybe yeah, I'm not that bad, right? So, so enable, and so part of the, the purpose of this is to just help us to identify what we need to grow because we are called to have high grace and high truth because that's where love is. Where high grace and high truth is, that's where love is. And this is the hard work of peacemaking. It's because we have to be high with grace. We have to be understanding. We have to be compassionate. 
We have to understand that we do not know what their life is like. We don't know what their situation is like. Even if we've gone through the same thing, we don't know how they experienced it. We don't understand. And so we need to be people of mercy and grace. And oftentimes, people of grief, they do terrible things because they don't know any better. Right? But we also need to be people who speak truth, who speak love, who do our best to walk with people and share grace and truth. So what do we do? How do we do this? The first thing is that we really have to be people who are at peace. Now, this is really, really hard when you're in the midst of chaos. I thought about that meme you guys have probably seen of the guy drinking coffee and there's fire all around. I'm fine. And we laugh at that. But I really think, actually, that that can be a Christian perspective is in a world that's ablaze, we can have the ability to drink our coffee and say, it's fine. I'm fine. Because I don't have to be anxious and upset about every other chaos in the world. I, I need to be clear of, what God, what is it that you're calling me to do? If possible, so far as it depends on me, live peaceably with all. But that still means there are fires that are burning out of control that I don't have the water to put out. And I have to be okay with that. That we can be at peace. And we have to understand that that's part of this world. In this world, Jesus says, you will have trouble. But he adds, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. And so I think one reason why we aren't at peace is because we accept and we embrace responsibility that doesn't belong to us. And Jesus is like, "Woo, man, there's going to be fires in this world, but I've got this. I'm working, I'm moving, and it's not all on you. Now, I think we also, we struggle to justify ourselves. And and, and the interesting things is we don't always get it right. And we we don't always interpret the world correctly. And so one of the reasons why we're not at peace is because we're not at peace with ourselves. There are some of you who are angry at yourself right now. Because of what happened. You, you look back at your life when you were 12 or 22 or 52 or 72 or whatever back looks like for you. And you think, man, I was such a fool. Why did I do that thing? Why did I hurt that person? Why did I do it? And one of the things that I've realized is, is, that, is that you were doing probably the best that you could do. Now, the best you could do might have hurt yourself. And the best you could do might have hurt other people. But, but I think that we need to let ourselves off the hook sometimes. What if you were just as forgiving to yourself if, as God was? What if you were just as loving and as gracious to yourself as God was? Because the truth is, if you knew now what you knew then, you wouldn't have done what you did then. But you didn't know it then. So you keep trying to justify that you were worse then, but maybe you need to hear the words that you were just as you could be. And you need to give yourself a break and give yourself the opportunity to be at peace, to forgive yourself. To own that you messed up, to repent of it, absolutely. But to move on from it as well. Now another reason why we're not at peace is not just because we messed up, but because other people messed up. And they hurt us. And some of you have been hurt very, very deeply in in ways that are profound and just painful on a physical, emotional level. And I want to be careful here because I know I'm dealing with holy territory. But what I want to tell you is don't let your pain have the loudest word in your life. It needs to be able to cry out. But it also needs to hear the voice of Jesus that says, I'm here, and I'm here for you. 
And so sometimes we can, we can give that thing that tortures our soul power and authority and that voice in our life. Or we can choose to say, God, can you speak the truth that echo, that gets that voice out a little bit at a time to that person who holds that part of your soul and it feels like they're twisting it even though what they did was years ago? They still, they still have a hold on it. That's not how God intended it for me. So forgive, and forgiveness is a process. And maybe you need to come up to this altar Sunday after Sunday and just say, Lord, help me to forgive this person. Because if not, um, and one of the things I've heard, you probably saw it too, is you know, not forgiving somebody is like drinking poison and expecting somebody else to die. We need to be people of forgiveness. And so how do we make peace? We have to name it, we have to feel it, but we also have to move through it slowly, carefully. It's holy ground, you all. But in order for us to be at peace, we have to be people of forgiveness. And we have to trust that Jesus is bigger than what happened to us and what we did to walk in that way. And it's a journey and it's not easy, but we pray that you can do it. But we also have to be people who bring the peace. Now, this too is a very difficult thing, but I'm thinking of um, one of my favorite quotes. It's from a guy by the name of Mr. Rogers. You may have heard of him. This is what he says. He says, there isn't anyone you couldn't learn to love if you didn't know their story. Now, again, I've watched some awful things on Netflix about terrible people who have done terrible things. But when they do a good job, I think, man, that poor person. I don't know what I would be like if I was abandoned by my family or abused in the ways that that person were abused or, or given a lack of education that might have happened. There isn't anyone you couldn't learn to love if you didn't know their story. And this is part of what it means to be human in conflict is to take time to enter into the life of another and learn their story and their perspective. Because what you and I are going to realize is that our assumptions about them and our assumptions about us are probably wrong. So how do we bring the peace? The first thing is that we have to do is we have to choose to enter into chaos. I mean, this is one of the things that I admire about our teachers. Because teachers are like, hey, let's get a group of 20-some-odd people who don't know each other, who come from different families, who have different perspectives, and let's put them all together, and we'll have fun. It'll be good for me. Right? But, but teachers choose to enter into the chaos, right? Some of you choose to enter into chaos vocationally or in other ways. You choose it. And this is part of the most holy thing that we do. When we say follow Jesus here, part of that is that we choose to enter into the chaos of the lives of other people. It's easier to sit back and judge and be like, ooh, those people. But no, that's not the mission of God. It's to enter right into it. Now, the next part of it is that we have to see the other person. Really see the other person. I mean, this is what Jesus did. He had this ability to see people. And if you read his encounters in the Gospels again and again, he saw the needs that people have, and that takes time. And when I'm trying to justify myself, what I see is I've got to be right, so you must be wrong. But it takes work and discipline to really see the other person, to have a heart at peace. It says, I want to know your story. I want to know and I want to understand things from your point of view. You still may have messed up and screwed up royally, but at least I want to understand how you got to where you got. And that brings us to the third step, which is to have genuine curiosity. Really, I think curiosity is one of the greatest gifts that God has given us as people, is the ability to be curious. And so when somebody does something that just flatly makes no sense to me, 
that just seems like an awful and terrible thing to do? Or why would somebody think that way or do that thing? Instead of me turning around and saying, they must not know the truth, I'm going to say, tell me more. I don't understand this. I don't see it. I don't want to do this. And so we're going to lean in with curiosity. In fact, this is what Jesus did. You know, Jesus, uh, and, and my wife shared something, and I wish I remembered the stats, but he asked a ton of questions in the Gospels. I mean, in fact, even in the story I read, he asked more questions than he answered. And this is the pattern of Jesus to have a genuine curiosity to bring forth out of people what it was. And so we lean in and we're curious people. That helps people to feel heard. And did you know that having somebody who feels heard is almost as good as making them feel loved? If people feel heard, it's basically the same thing as they are of, of feeling loved. And the last thing we do is that we, we are full of grace and truth. So we bring this grace and truth to them. Because that's what love is. is to walk with them no matter what. To, to speak the truth as we have opportunities as best as we understand it. And to take this journey of making peace. This is hard, messy work. You're going to get bruises and scars if you're in peacemaking. But you'll also get hugs and you'll get peace. And those are the best things in the world. Now, when I was working on my uh, message this week, I, I listened to this TED Talk by this, um, the guy who did the anatomy of a piece, Jim Farrell. And he's, he has this great TED Talk, and you can look it up. And um, in there, he tells a story. He, he tells a story about... Um, a son who was, had turned 16 and was able to drive. Now, this was years ago, 1952. And so in 1952, um, his dad had just bought a new Plymouth car, which apparently would have been a big deal back in the day. And so uh, they, they lived on sort of this mountainside. And, um, and so, you know, if he was going to go into town, he had to go down the mountain. So he asked his dad, he said, Dad, can I borrow the car to go take this girl out on a date. They had an old beater truck, but that wasn't impressive, right? He wanted to impress this girl. So dad said yes. So the guy, um, he, got in, in his car, he got to the car, um, he, started, he started to get it going. When he turned it on, he noticed that the, the gas gauge was almost empty. So he um, went back inside. He asked his dad for gas money. This is a scene that has replayed itself many times, I imagine, right? So he gave him three bucks, which in those days was enough to fill up a car. And nowadays, not quite the same, right? So he, he, when he comes back out, the car is missing. So he panics, right? And so he, he wonders, did somebody steal it? What happened? And, you know, and so he, um, right across from the driveway was the street. Across from the street was a ravine that went down 200 feet. <laughs> you know where this story's going. So he, he goes and he, he looks down, and there it is, his dad's car at the bottom of the ravine, 200 feet down, brand new car. What do you do? What do you do? Run away. <laughs> so he, uh, he goes in and he tells the story. He tells his dad was reading the paper. Dad, you can only imagine the scene, right? How do you stumble through those words, right? Tells him what happened. Dad, uh, da, 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 car at the bottom of the ravine. His dad looks down, pulls down the paper. Says, I guess you better take the truck then. It's exactly how all of you would have reacted, I know. Um, 
so the the son and 16 year old you know whatever just gets in the car and he goes and as he goes a few miles down the road all of a sudden he is overcome with what had just happened because he so he pulls off and what he says was the worst day of his life he pulls off and he just sobs and sobs and sobs because he realizes that his dad loved him more than his dad loved the car can we be people who love each other more than we love that thing, more than we love that fight, more than we love anything else. Can we be people who love our neighbors as we love ourselves and walk with one another? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. The best representatives of God in this world are when we make peace with ourselves, with God, and with one another. May it be so on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for listening to the Mustang UMC podcast. Once again, our services are at 8.30 and 10.50 a.m. every Sunday morning, and we would love to see you there. For more information about the Mustang United Methodist Church, please visit us at mustangumc.org or email us at office at mustangumc.org. That is office at mustangumc.org. We hope you enjoyed.